0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Carl Zimmer about Life's Edge. First, wanted to let you know that if you enjoy this conversation or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it simple for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy the book through bookshop.org. They don't pay me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this podcast, follow us on social media. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Books on Pod. My name is Paul Nurse. I've written a book, What is Life? If you read it, you will understand what biology is, what life is, and you will do it in five simple steps. And this is Books on Pod by Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Carl Zimmer is the science columnist for The New York Times and the author of 14 Books, his newest is titled Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Carl, thank you for the time. How you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thank you for asking. I really enjoyed reading this book. It does a great job of explaining science through storytelling, really starting with the remarkable research and experimentation that is happening at the Sanford Consortium for Regenerative Medicine in La Jolla, California. What exactly are they doing there that shows the transformational powers of human cells?
1: What they're doing at this research center uh, under the leadership of a scientist named Alison Moitry is they're essentially growing miniature versions of human brains. They're not exactly human brains, but they they have different types of cells that you find in your brain, and they're organized strikingly like our brains are. And what's really amazing is that you can grow one of these things called a brain organoid from just a skin cell. So, you could take a skin cell from someone, treat it with some chemicals, and eventually turn it into what's called a progenitor cell that can give rise to hundreds of thousands of neurons in a little ball, maybe the size of a pea. And this organoid will even produce electrical activity that resembles brain waves. So it's really kind of amazing. And it really challenges our ideas about life, as I talk about in Life's Edge, because we think about what makes each of us unique as a living thing, uh, or at least a living human as, as our brains. But here's this organoid that's produced from somebody's skin cell that has a lot of the features of a human brain. It's really important for studying diseases. Before now, understanding the developing human brain was just a total black box. But now scientists can do experiments on these things. But there's really no telling where things go from here, like how big can these things get? How sophisticated will their electrical activity get? We really don't know, and it's really posing some ethical and even philosophical challenges.
0: What is maybe the biggest ethical question being asked about these brain organoids right now?
1: Well, in the long term, the question is going to be, could these Organoids ever really take on some of the things that make us feel like we have ethical obligations to other people? So, could an organoid learn? Could it eventually change its activity in response to signals from the outside world? You know, you could just sort of feed signals into it, the dish where this thing is floating, and then maybe it could learn to process them in some way we can't even predict. You know, these things will not become aware of themselves the way we can. But they're large networks of human neurons. That's also what our brains are. So scientists are are thinking carefully about where this research is going. Maybe they should set up some ethical tripwires. Like even if there's a hint that they're making more progress than they expected, maybe they will back off. Like I say, there's tons that you can learn just from these really simple organoids. For example, there's a virus called Zika virus that caused incredible brain defects in babies in Brazil, and you can actually understand how that happens by infecting these organoids with the virus. You can watch that play out, and then you can then test out different medicines to see if there's a good medicine that can block the Zika virus, and that's already been happening. So there's lots we can do with these things right now. Maybe more that we can learn with them later, but you know, we do have to be careful.
0: It took us a long time to understand how human life is created, and you go back through and give a brief history of some of the laws, beliefs, and customs surrounding how we thought life was created at reproduction, and this includes a brief history of anti-abortion laws. And obviously, even those who uh, still are the biggest anti-abortion advocates believe so in part because of this idea that life begins at conception. What does science tell us about whether or not life begins at conception?
1: So scientists for decades have been trying to make it clear that this kind of a statement is meaningless. If you're talking about cells that have metabolism and have genetic information and can divide, life begins before conception because the egg and sperm that give rise to an embryo, they're alive, they're living cells. In terms of just sort of cellular activity that we think of as life, there's no particular change at conception. So then people will say, well, when people are are insistent that life begins at conception, what they then will try to specify is like, oh no, there's suddenly like a new human genome. So they're not talking about life. They're talking about a life. They're not talking about just any life. They're talking about a human life. But this process of a new genome coming about does not happen instantaneously. It is, again, a gradual process. And there's actually quite a while while the male chromosomes and the female chromosomes are just acting independently inside of a fertilized egg. They're not unified yet. And then, you know, of course, we have facts of biology that don't fit into this notion that there's like one distinct human life that formed at this arbitrary point because you can have have these early embryos that split and produce identical twins both of them have separate legitimate lives after birth and you can also have um, cases where separate clumps of these fetal cells merge together people can be a chimera And we don't let them vote twice. They are one person, just like anybody else. So obviously, there are a whole bunch of issues that are very contentious that have to do with the right to abortion. It's a a very broad debate. In Life's Edge, I really zero in on this claim that life, quote-unquote, begins at conception. And in my whole book, I'm trying to to make the point that when we think there's a sharp edge dividing life from non-life again and again, we actually find that that's not the case. It's more complicated and more interesting.
0: As comedian Bill Hicks once said, life begins when you're in my phone book. (laughs) What is primate thanatology, and how has it helped advance what we know about distinguishing between life and death? So
1: thanatology is the study of death, and it turns out that primatologists who study apes and monkeys have observed that apes and monkeys can have a striking relationship to the death of their members of their own species. So there's this subfield you could call it called primate fanatology that has cropped up because scientists are really fascinated. Why would a monkey seeing a, another member of its troop being dead? Why would they react differently? How is it that this could set about a distinctive set of behaviors What's going on in that monkey's head? And it seems that monkeys and apes have really keenly tuned brain circuits for recognizing other living things, in particular living members of their own species. They can detect biological motion very quickly and distinguish that from other kinds of motion. And they are very tuned into facial expressions where another monkey's or ape's eyes are going, and so on. And when they combine all of that, it seems, into an overall sense of other members of their group being living things. And it's very disorienting when suddenly here's this member of your troop that looks like all the other members of your troop but is not moving or is their body is in a strange position. And that can create sort of a disconnect that these primates have a difficult time dealing with. What I argue in my book is that we humans, we've inherited all this brain circuitry and it underlies a lot of, you know, our scientific exploration of life and death. And so the thing is that we have an intuition about what it means to be alive. We know that we're alive when we can tell that other people are alive we haven't deduced that scientifically. It's just that we're recognizing certain signals and we are interpreting it in a particular way. And that was really useful for our ancestors for a lot of different reasons. It's good to be able to tell, you know, a predator is coming your way as opposed to just a rock rolling down a hill. But, you know, it gets us into trouble because we think that defining life should be simple and easy. We think that telling the difference between life and death should be simple and easy because we have this intuitive feel for it, which is very ancient, I would argue. And it doesn't have to be that way. And it turns out it is not that way. There are lots of cases in the biological world where it's very hard to tell if things are actually alive or dead.
0: You ask a number of biologists for some hallmarks of life, the most common traits shared among plants and animals one of the most common answers is metabolism. Now, that's a word that many of us are familiar with, but I'm not sure how many actually understand it. So what is metabolism?
1: Metabolism is a whole set of chemical reactions that allow us to take in food and oxygen and to basically create fuel that we can use for energy and biomass. And also to break that material down as waste and get rid of it if necessary. So it's basically this incredible web of chemical reactions that sustains us. And it's really astonishing that you can find most of the same foundations of metabolism in any species that you look at. You mentioned animals and plants. A mushroom will have a very similar metabolism to us, so will E. coli bacteria. We all use the same fuel, ATP. Everything does. And so there's a deep underlying unity to this hallmark of life. That being said, different species specialize in different kinds of metabolism. So for my book, I wrote about visiting a scientist at the University of Alabama who studies pythons who are amazing in terms of metabolism because they can eat practically their whole weight in prey all at once and then have to break it down and that actually just to get that fuel and and material out of out of their meal the metabolic rate jumps up incredibly it's kind of on par with like a galloping horse but they're just lying there digesting this food for a couple of days so they're real you know metabolic champions in that way So that's one of the hallmarks of life that I talk about in the book.
0: Yeah, the similarity between racehorses and pythons metabolically, that was one of the more mind-blowing things that I read about in this book. I also loved reading about homeostasis. You got an up-close look and learn on some long-eared bats with two biologists at an old graphite mine. What is homeostasis and why are these creatures such fascinating subjects on the matter?
1: So homeostasis is another hallmark of life. In other words, when biologists are exploring living things, one of the things that they study the most in terms of the fundamental aspects of life is homeostasis. And homeostasis is an internal balance. So different species have different kinds of balance, but you know we, for example, walk around and keep our body temperature constant. We keep our blood sugar constant. We keep all sorts of things constant inside of us, even though the world around us may be changing all the time. And different species have, use homeostasis to stay alive in different ways. And my favorite example is bats. Not only are they warm-blooded, not only do they keep their blood sugar steady, not only do they keep their blood pressure steady, but, you know, they stay in flight. They're able to actually stabilize themselves constantly in the air it's kind of this amazing external homeostasis and then when winter comes they shift their metabolism so that they can have a new homeostasis so what they do is they fly into caves or mines and just grab onto the walls and let their body temperature just drop to the same temperature as their surroundings their heart is still beating but very slowly they're barely breathing So they've shifted to a new balance, and that normally can get them through the winter. I went into a graphite mine, an abandoned graphite mine, as you mentioned, actually, in New York, and we were able to see these things up close. The sad thing is that if it had been 20 years ago, I would have seen a whole lot more bats in this cave because they have been decimated by a fungus that causes a disease called white-nose syndrome. And it's actually a disease of homeostasis it keeps these bats from being able to shift to the right balance to survive the winter. They keep sort of waking up over the course of the winter, probably because they're getting dehydrated because of the infection or because their immune system is trying to fight off the fungus through the winter. They're flying around trying to get water and things like that. So by the time they come out in spring, they are in really bad shape and they might die soon afterwards. So it's just another example of how fundamental homeostasis is to to life itself.
0: Reproduction may be the most obvious hallmark of life, whereas humans pass along copies of genes to younger generations by, well, doing it. How other animals reproduce varies greatly. How do slime mold amoebae bump uglies?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, so I write about slime mold in the book, which are a kind of life that people may be less familiar with than a python or a bat. But if you've ever taken a walk in the woods in the summer, you you have walked past slime mold. They're all over the place on the forest floor. And sometimes you can see them because they look like strange, sort of gelatinous mass. One species is called dog's vomit, which is very accurate. (laughs) So these are more closely related to animals and plants and mushrooms than they are to bacteria. But they have like very strange ways of reproducing. So they can produce little spores that get blown away in the wind, or these slime molds can sort of make contact and actually have sex. They can mix together genes, and suddenly you have a new slime mold that has a combination of chromosomes in the same way that we carry the chromosomes of our parents. So there's a couple of just several different bizarre ways that slime molds can reproduce and, and pass on their genes to, to future generations. And, you know, again, that's a big hallmark. I mean, every species that we know of can do this. I mean, even, even viruses do this, although they don't actually make their own genes by themselves. They basically hijack a cell and get the cell to make their genes for them.
0: We've been brewing beer for at least 13,000 years. How and why did the study of beer lead to a Nobel Prize in 1907?
1: Well, beer, although it was made for thousands of years, was for a long time a, a very mysterious thing because somehow if you just kind of left this mashed up broth of grains around, it would become alcoholic. It would have bubbles in it. It was transformed, and nobody was really clear why. And, you know, they could see that there were dregs that would be in the bottom of the beer as they were making it, but they didn't really know what that was. Maybe it was just sort of a side product of, of the beer. It became clear in the 19th century that both beer and wine and bread actually depend on yeast to be transformed. And in the case of beer, the yeast can produce alcohol as a byproduct, and yeast are single-celled fungi, and and they just sort of drift around in the air. So there was a lot of debate about, well, how does this happen? What is going on? What 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 is the yeast doing? And so this sort of was happening at the same time that there was a more fundamental debate about life. In the 19th century, there were some people who really believed that Life was separate from chemistry, that the kinds of molecules that you found in living things could not be created just in a lab somewhere. So what happened was that a scientist named Edward Buchner was actually able to pull out certain proteins from yeast, what came to be known as as enzymes, and was able to show that just using those enzymes was enough to produce the the alcohol in that fermentation that produced beer so that he could actually like break down this living thing, the yeast, into these molecules that could then carry out this transformation. And so this was a big shift where, you know, these so-called vital forces really started to disappear and started to think about life now in terms of biochemistry, And so, you know, in the book, I look at the change over the centuries at how we look at life. And it turns out that beer played this pivotal role in our shift to thinking about life as a set of chemical reactions.
0: And as Sir Paul Nurse pointed out a few episodes back, when you trace the origins of life, we are actually related to yeast. So the next time you're drinking a beer, you treat that beer like you would a a distant relative that you hadn't seen in a while, right?
1: Well, absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, we're also related to the plants that uh, were fermented in the beer as well. We all belong to the giant tree of life.
0: <laughs> That's right. Uh, viruses are obviously having a heyday right now via COVID-19. Do viruses show enough of life's hallmarks to be considered living?
1: Well, that is a kind of question that gets scientists really riled up. Um <laughs> I wrote about whether viruses are alive, wrote an essay based on Life's Edge that appeared in the New York Times recently and got a lot of feedback from scientists. And I literally had one scientist in the morning email me and tell me emphatically, of course, viruses are not alive and any expert will tell you. And then in the afternoon, I got another email from another scientist saying, of course, viruses are alive. And any expert will tell you, <laughs> you know, they, they, they both cannot be right. And I'm just fascinated at how viruses can still produce this debate and which is a debate that's been going on for almost a century. And the catch is that, you know, in some ways, viruses are amazing at the kinds of things we think of as the hallmarks of life. You know, in terms of evolution, for example, evolution is a hallmark of life. We're all the product of evolution, and viruses are amazing at evolving. You know, we're dealing with that right now with the pandemic. You know, we have a new coronavirus species, uh, a new kind of coronavirus that evolved from bat coronaviruses, and it is continuing to evolve, producing variants that are causing concern about speeding up the pandemic and maybe even making our vaccines less effective. So if evolution is on your list of essential things, then yes, viruses have that. But we just talked about metabolism. Viruses do not have that, at least not in the conventional way we think about it. A virus doesn't just crawl around and eat stuff. It doesn't photosynthesize. It has to get inside of a host and let that host cell do the metabolism for it. So, some people have said, well, they don't have everything that we require in living things, so they're not alive. But, you know, I think that the very fact that you could have something that has so many features of life and yet doesn't have one of them is really interesting in and of itself. So, it shows you that you can actually pull these hallmarks apart and you can have some and not others. And, you know, I think we do need, like, another name for these kinds of things that are on the edges of life.
0: Carl, one of your last chapters is dedicated to the search for life beyond Earth. Do you believe extraterrestrial intelligence is out there? And if so, are we on Earth ready to learn of its existence?
1: Um, well... I am pretty confident that there is maybe sort of a microbe-like level of life out there somewhere, which, you know, has an intelligence of a sort. I think that we kind of underestimate the sophistication of bacteria and fly molds and other things that we might call microbes. But if we're trying to think about life like ourselves, life that can send signals from one planet to another planet. I am a lot less sanguine about that, just because so many things have to go right. You know, you have to have the right kind of planet with the right kind of geological activity, potentially. It has to have, you know, all sorts of different characteristics that can allow, you know, not just multicellular life to evolve, but for them that multicellular life to evolve some sort of cognition, which can then become sophisticated enough to let them do stuff like, you know, build things out out of various metals. And some people have have argued, if intelligent life was fairly abundant out there, we'd know by now. So they they refer to this lack of communication from intelligent civilizations as the great silence. You know, this is something that has to be explained. But on the other hand, I think it's important that we look for life elsewhere in the universe, even in our own solar system. I just think we shouldn't lock ourselves into a a simplistic search image of what life might be. Scientists do not have an agreed-upon definition of life, and that's partly because they don't have a theory of life. So, you know, we need to be open to weird possibilities strange kinds of chemistry, weird sorts of organization that can't be explained with just standard geology or something like that. We should go and see what we find.
0: We should probably drop the preconceived notions created about extraterrestrial intelligence based on all the sci-fi movies over the years, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I I don't I just don't think we should think of aliens as looking like Hollywood extras, you know, <laughs> I just with a little makeup on. I just that we need to, <laughs> to widen our expectations. We're putting a lot of emphasis on, on searching for life, uh, assuming that it has DNA. Well, that's a great assumption if you're looking for life on Earth, but why does it have to be like that elsewhere? There's no clear proof that life can only be in DNA, based on DNA. So why should we close ourselves off to the possibility that you know some other molecule can have a sort of genetic function? How would we look more broadly for signs of that?
0: All right, final question, Carl. You've studied and spoken with some very bright people who are all in search for an answer of the important and oft-asked question, what is life? As we sit here chatting in early 2021, do you have a good, succinct answer to this question?
1: Nobody does, and I think that the best, way to think about that question is from a philosopher named Carol Cleland. She suggested we think about what it would be like to ask an alchemist in, say, 1500, what is water? Hmm. The alchemist might say, well, water is wet, and water is transparent, and water has these different properties. And that would be their definition of water. And that would be really Kind of pointless. What was really needed, and would, what would not come for 200, 300 more years, would be a theory of chemistry that explained water in a meaningful way. You had to find out about the elements and about atoms and about molecules, and to understand that in that water there were these things that had an oxygen atom and a hydrogen atom, two hydrogen atoms stuck on it that inter- did interesting things as a result of that. So once you have a theory then things really take off. We don't have a theory of life yet, but we could pretty soon. And I think that that will really change the whole game.
0: Carl Zimmer is the science columnist for the New York Times, professor adjunct in the Department of Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry at Yale and author of 14 books. His newest is Life's Edge, the search for what it means to be alive. Carl, thank you so much for the time today. And thank you for this wonderful book. Great. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you for listening. Check out BooksOnPod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.